0: in love. I married him.
1: I knew it was a party. I love parties. For you, five
2: coins. We love stories! It's time for the
3: Appleseed, filled with stories for you and your family. Since 2013, we've been bringing you tall tales and personal tales and fairy tales and historical tales and more, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Now, if you're new to the Apple Seed, you should know that our goal here is to share stories with you that will spark memories that you can share with the people that you love. And there's lots on today's episode that you're sure to relate to, whether it's trapping a pest or unleashing the power of music or pondering on why things are the way they are. You'll hear from Madeline Potts and Martha Hamilton and Mitch Weiss as well as Dan Kedding, the wonderful storyteller from the Chicago area. All of these tales and tellers are sure to put a smile on your face and put you in the mood to share your own stories. And to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm very pleased to be joined in the studio by our producer, Jeff Simpson. Jeff, it's such a pleasure to have you with me. It's great to be here. Let's talk a little bit about this Lena Del story story.
4: I love Lini Del Siemens. She is just a delight to listen to, as you'll hear in this story that is about a near-death experience. You would never think that even a near-death experience story would be so delightful, as right, told yeah. by uh, Lini Del Siemens. But uh, yeah, she talks about a surgery that uh, she is going in for, and things don't go necessarily according to plan. And uh, as we listen to it, Sam, I want you to think about maybe a near-death experience in your life or maybe uh, somebody that you're close to, if you're willing to share it anyway. Sure, sure. Um, As you'll hear mine, mine is more out of stupidity and less out of, you know, circumstance. Hers is, (laughs) it just happened to happen to her, and mine was, yeah, it was a, a life lesson that I I learned the hard way. Well, right? we'll we'll hear about it. I, I, right now, I'm intrigued by the juxtaposition of the phrases
3: surgery, not gone as planned, uh, life threatening experience, and uh, delight. Those, yes. Those, those, those yes. Are, those are interesting words and phrases to and have. And yet, it know. all comes together. Yeah, yeah. Lena Del Siemens is the storyteller, and the story is Party Girl. We're happy to bring it to you here on the Appleseed.
1: Party Girl. That was one of my nicknames. I love parties. They were part of growing up in Collingswood, New Jersey. My parents put on fabulous parties. For birthdays, Halloween, Thanksgiving, confirmation, graduation, Fourth of July, and especially New Year's Eve. Those were the best. Every party was held in our finished basement which could easily accommodate 40 to 50 people. I eagerly helped my parents with food preparations and festive decorations, because I just love parties. Maybe it's the excitement in the air, the anticipation of a happy celebration, but most of all, I think it's the fellowship, the people connection. As an adult, I'm happy to report I've continued my parents' party tradition. I have thrown some pretty outstanding festivities through the years. Still the party girl. And whenever a party invitation arrives in the mail, oh, my pulse quickens as I open the envelope. Because attending a party is as exciting as hosting one. About 20 years ago, I became ill with female-related issues and required surgery. Although considered major surgery, this procedure is fairly common, and I was anxious to get rid of the problem and move on with my life. So I cleared my calendar, made carpool arrangements for my sons and their activities, and went to the hospital to donate the standard three units of blood prior to this type of operation. The morning of the big event, my husband Grant drove me to the hospital and stayed. While we waited, (laughs) we made jokes about how sexy I looked wearing my johnny and fuzzy booties. When it was time for surgery, Grant (kissed) kissed me and said, I'll see you when you get out of recovery. Now behave yourself. I looked up at him. Hmm, that's no fun, and closed my eyes as the attendant wheeled me through the double doors. When I opened my eyes again, oh, the lids felt like lead weights. I was still sedated and could barely raise them, just enough to see the bottom half of Grant's jeans. He was sitting in a chair next to my bed, but I couldn't even lift my head to see his face. So I talked to his knees instead. Grant was saying something like, The surgeon said you did great, honey. The operation went well. They only needed to give you back two units of your blood. I mumbled, Huh? Does this mean we have to take home the third bag of blood? Oh, Ah, I felt pain and remembered I just had surgery. The nurse came in to check my vitals, and Grant reminded her to make sure I was getting the pain medicine the doctor prescribed. See, Grant worked for a medical device company that just invented a pain management pump called patient-controlled analgesia. Grant had been quite disappointed when he learned this hospital didn't use these PCA pumps yet. But the nurse assured Grant I was all set and urged him to go home and get some rest. He bent down and (sniffs) kissed me goodnight while the nurse administered a dose of Dilaudid, a painkiller. She then drew the curtain around my bed and left the room. I closed my eyes and drifted off. I was standing up and feeling well. No pain. I felt wonderful, calm. Ooh, what's that? It's beautiful, shiny and sparkly, bright rays streaming down. So pretty. I moved closer to the white path next to me. Ah, oh. what's that sound? Clink, 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 clink. It's coming from back there. Clink, clink. Sounds like silver. Someone's setting out sterling silverware on crisp white linens. Clink, clink. Clink, clink. No. They're crystal goblets. Someone's making a toast. Clink, clink. Ah, <gasps> it's champagne. They're having a party. Oh. This light is so beautiful. Calm. I need to go up here. Then I heard a voice. It wasn't Grant's. Leanie, where are you going? I'm going here, into the light. Come back. Come back. You'll miss the party. I knew it was a party. I love parties. No, no. No, I can't. I have to go up here. I stepped into the shiny, bright path. But the voice stopped me. Lini, come back. Come back to the party. I was torn. I didn't want to miss the party, but I was drawn into this light. Clink, 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 clink. Come back. Lini. come back. Okay, I'll come back. I looked up, and there was a circle of blank faces staring down at me large eyes from faces hidden beneath blue surgical masks. No one said a word. I started to speak, but couldn't. Then a man with the kindest eyes said, She's trying to talk. Remove the trach tube. Someone pulled out this thick device lodged in my throat I looked up. Where's the party? Everyone looked confused, but the man with the kind eyes replied, Welcome back, miss. I had no idea what happened, and neither did this medical team dressed in scrubs. All they knew was that the phlebotomist arrived at my recovery room to check my red cell count to see if the third unit of blood was required. But when she pulled back the curtain, she found me in full respiratory arrest and called a code blue. And it wasn't until much later we learned that the recovery room nurse, who had spoken to my husband, had carelessly given me an overdose of Dilaudid, the painkiller that is ten times stronger than morphine. I am truly grateful to the phlebotomist who stopped by that day to check my blood. What perfect timing. Hmm. Coincidence? <laughs> and I shuddered to think what would have happened to my voice if that medical team had decided to take more drastic actions so I could breathe. <laughs> they certainly had all the instruments lined up, clink, 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 ready to do the procedure. But most of all, I feel blessed. I decided to come back to the party and rejoin the human race. It really is a wonderful world, even if there's room for improvement. We just need to listen more and be mindful and considerate of one another. Nope, I'm not ready yet to attend the big party up in heaven. I think I'm supposed to be here for a while. But I do know that when that formal invitation does arrive, Will be okay. I'm not afraid. And I'll be ready to accept it. I'll get all dolled up in my fancy party dress. Put on my dancing shoes. And red lips. And quickly reply with my RSVP. <face>
3: Lenny Del Siemens with the story Party Girl. I've been sitting and listening not only with you, but with Jeff Simpson, our producer, as well. And Jeff, you know, you introduced that story with, and we commented on it, right, with the kind of the juxtaposition of the words and phrases, uh, near-death experience, surgery, not gone as planned, but also with the word delight, you know? Yeah. And I, I and I would add to that, I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more. What a delight to listen to that story. And I would add to that, just a comment on how uh, how much delight you take from a story like that and also how it leaves you feeling a little pensive and even ready to talk about things that you might be afraid to talk about under sure. other circumstances.
4: Sure. Now, certainly you know? there are times in our lives where, you know, we're we're just way too young to go, right? Yeah. And so there are things that are a little more tragic than others. But um, for her, I, the way that she ends it is, is yeah, it does make you think and it does make you realize that, oh, okay, there is there is a process to this life which yeah. ends in death. And hopefully we've lived to a ripe old age that we might be to a place where we can welcome it and go peacefully. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't happen that way for everybody. And uh, it almost didn't happen that way for me because I have a near-death experience <laughs> of my own. I didn't see any bright lights. I didn't hear any voices saying, don't go toward the light all I did was uh, make the mistake of trying to, I made a little electrical faux pas, we'll just say. I was oh, no. trying to fix this cord that we had on the back of our dryer. In fact, I think we had just, uh, we, I was replacing it, and I thought, well, it doesn't really matter which end gets connected first, oh, right? Gosh, yeah. And so instead of hooking it up to the dryer first, I just took the plug. And shoved it into the uh, to the uh, outlet, yeah. and the uh, the plug came popping out, bright explosion, and I picked up the cord, and the uh, the prongs weren't really there anymore, and <laughs> yeah. I you know I didn't think too much of it until yeah. I talked to my brother who is very handy. Yeah, I think I've illustrated I'm not handy at all, <laughs> not uh, electrically savvy at all. I talked to my brother and he got all serious and he said, oh, you are lucky to be alive right now. Yeah, wow. And I thought, oh my goodness, well, this isn't the first dumb mistake that I've made, but maybe I keep getting some passes because I'm still here and maybe I'm supposed <laughs> to be here for a little while longer, uh, hopefully so that I don't keep learning lessons like that the hard way. But um I guess the hard way would have been had it not turned out so well. But, um, yeah, that was kind of my near-death experience that really, as you said, yeah, made me become super thoughtful and grateful to be alive, yeah. right? Yeah. I uh, My father went in for
3: open-heart surgery some years ago. And—, and you kind of get lost in just the hubbub of, of of preparing for that and making sure you understand the schedules and all that's going to happen and 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 finally, in a quiet moment, uh, my dad talked to me about some of the kind of end of life. Just in case preparations mm. that I might have to have in mind should it not go well. And I think I, I wasn't ready to talk about those things. you know, I weathered it pretty well and and he came out fine. But that, that those that conversation in that quiet moment, it it kind of bowled me over, you know, and and left me pensive about some of the things that might occur and some of the ways in which it's wise to prepare each other. And as Lindy del Siemens told that story, I find myself thinking, Gosh, what a useful thing a story can be. You know, sometimes sometimes we have a hard time facing head on, rushing head on into some of the difficult conversations of our lives. But sometimes if we begin those conversations with something like, Hey, have you heard that Lenny Del Siemens story? Yeah. You know? And it's okay to <laughs> it infuse in.
4: it's okay to infuse some humor into those conversations, yeah. but you don't want to be blindsided. You right. want to be prepared one way or the other. Yeah. And hopefully uh, that reality doesn't occur until many, many, many years yeah. later.
3: Well, I'm, I'm buying your word, Jeff. Delight, Delightful is just the <laughs> word, right? Such a pleasure to have you with us. And, of course, there's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. Stick around. I'm Sam Payne.
4: You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam
3: Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Apple Seed. Just a moment ago, we heard a story called Party Girl, a story from Lini Del Siemens. I listened to it not only with you, but uh, with Jeff Simpson, our producer. Always a pleasure to have Jeff on the show with us in the studio. And there's a lot coming up. You're going to hear a story from Madeline Potts. It's a story called Trapping the Critter. If you've ever had to trap a pest, you're going to love that story, and of course, you're you're going to hear The Taxi Ride, a story collected by Martha Hamilton and Mitch Weiss as part of a collection of stories designed to present to kids stories that they can tell themselves. Again, that's called The Taxi Ride, and it's coming up just a little later in the hour. And of course, you're going to hear a story from Dan Kedding from a collection called Strawberries in Winter. It's a story called Filling Up the House, and you're going to love it. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the tellings of tales again and again around the kitchen table, or around the living room, or around the campfire, through the things that we choose to see on screen, or through the great music that we digest and that becomes part of us. In speaking of digesting, even the food that we eat together and alone makes for stories we call those zip files, right? You touch a meal that you've had and it unfolds into a story that was a lot bigger than the meal. And of course, that's the story behind books as well. Books spark memories for us. And of course, the stories in the books get down into our hearts as well. And we're always happy to talk about all of the ways in which great stories get down into our hearts and minds. And uh, we love to do it with friends. I've got Paul Ricks with me behind the microphone. Paul, it's great to have you. Great to be here. Thank you. We've talked a lot about a lot of great books in the past, and we're about to talk about another one. <laughs> yes, indeed.
5: The one for today is Rebecca Stead's When You Reach Me. Hmm. This this is a, a Newbery winner, so the yeah. Premier Literary Award for you know given by the American Library Association, and it's one of only three novels, science fiction novels, that have ever gotten this award. Huh. So. Sci fi is not beloved in, uh, for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe it's a hard sell for teachers, for librarians. Sure. I, I don't know.
3: You know, such a popular idiom, right? Yeah. This science fiction. Right. But we have trouble with it at the Academy Awards. We oh, have yeah. yeah, with, yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's, it's a little tough for people to say, let's give the award to that one. Right. For right. some Let,
5: reason. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's only won the award a handful of times. There's Wrinkle in Time, yeah. which I think a lot of people will be familiar sure. with. And then yeah. uh, Lois Lowry's The Giver, yeah. the dystopian novel. And right. then this one is a kind of science fiction that might be called not soft sci-fi, but maybe like slipstream, meaning the story is set in the late 70s. Hmm. And... If to the lay reader, myself included, I thought I was just reading kind of a little bit of historical fiction. You yeah, I was just like, oh, this is really interesting. It's set in New York in nineteen, you know, seventy-eight, seventy-nine, something like that. And then halfway through the book, I was like, whoa, just kidding! It's not. This is a time travel novel, and I didn't know it. <laughs> and then. It just, everything came together for me where the the characters, I was thinking of them differently. Am I seeing older versions of these characters? Are these younger versions of the characters? Are they indeed the <gasps> same characters? And maybe in the same way that Back to the Future messes with us. Yeah, yeah, And And we sit there trying to think through, could this happen? What would I do if it happened? The characters... I don't know. They're they're just very relatable. They're very well-crafted in the sense that we are given step-by-step step more and more of their attributes and characteristics so we know who they are. Yeah. And we start to maybe empathize and sympathize with some who've got the less comely parts. Sure, Because sure. we've been given their good parts versions first. Yeah. Instead yeah. of just, hey, this is the old guy who's mean. It's the old guy who's mean, but maybe there's a reason. Huh. And, hey, this is the girl who, you know, is trying to find herself and maybe that makes her relatable or not. But no, 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 no. This is the, old, the young girl who's trying to find herself, and she's she's got some yeah. some in, increased depth behind the scenes.
3: So set up the plot for us just a little sure. bit. You open the book, and you
5: meet... Miranda. Yeah. And Miranda is writing a letter. It's an epistolary novel, right, yeah. where it's a series of letters. And it, it sounds like she's just writing to her diary. Hmm. But uh-huh. maybe halfway through, we find out, wait, 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 she's not just writing to her diary. She is writing to somebody from what is the future to her Hmm. who has already been in her life as that older person, and he has left her a note in her room saying, hey, keep telling me your story, yeah, but give me a lot of the details because I'm already part of it. And then it's this loop upon loops upon loops. Wait, if she is writing to him, and he has already responded by giving her this letter. Yeah. Then does she have to write the letter? <laughs> and if if so, oh wait, she already has written the letter. What does that mean? And these yeah. loops upon loops where the back of your head just blows clear off. So
3: <laughs> it's cool. Which is what we're after. Yeah, agree. that's what we want. <laughs> Backs of our heads blown off. That's
5: <laughs> something that a good friend of mine and I, we were talking through, it came up because of this book, but it also just fit the natural rhythms of our life. And we were talking about how... Sometimes we use the phrase, you know, I don't think I ever would have been their friend except. Yeah. And there's this semi-contrived thing that brought them together. They were volunteering for the same thing. Their kids were on the same team. They met each other at the bus stop, whatever it is. I never would have been their friend except. And then we talked about the sadness that that brought to us where we were kind of saying, how quick are we to make these judgments? Yeah. And how often are we missing out on these amazing opportunities to connect human to human yeah. because something on the facade, for whatever reason, doesn't resonate. And we say, oh, no, I, n- I can't. Yeah, you know, They listen to this, whereas I listen to. Or they <laughs> wear this, whereas I wear. And then we peel back these layers and we're like, oh, how much do I have to learn through yeah. this experience? And how, how amazing is it that we're really connecting on this level? I, again, that, that phrase, I never would have been their friend except... It's terrifying. It's tough, or, huh?
3: That once you get to know somebody and have a really rich experience with them, and then you look them in the eye and say, "This almost didn't happen," right? You know, that's a that's that's where the that's where the the gratitude for the for the happenstance comes, right?
5: Right, and that's that's what happens kind of time and time again. Not in a in a way that you think, "Oh, come on, author, what are you doing?" This has been done time and time again. <laughs> I think it's I think it's really beautifully crafted, but it is. There are these micro crashings, seeing insignificant bumps, literal bumps where people bump into each other and, like, oh, yeah, yeah, but that doesn't matter. But maybe it holds the key to, to so many other pathways. That are Often to think
3: we about. have a conversation about a picture book. Mm-hmm. This is a little bit longer. This is a novel. This is, yeah, as couple, you mentioned,
5: a Newbery Award winner. Right, a couple hundred pages. Yeah. Still, though, uh, written for young audiences. So if, if you want to feel really smart, you know, you can burn <laughs> through this thing pretty quickly. But it's also one that I think would probably be very approachable for maybe a... Maybe the 10 to 14-year-old audience hmm. yeah. where they could see themselves in the protagonists. Sure. Though, of course, younger if it was being read to or older, if we just want to take a little stroll down sure. nostalgia or amnesia yeah. lane. So.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the book is When You Reach Me, the author. Rebecca Stead. Rebecca Stead. What a pleasure always to have you with us, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. great stories come into our lives in so many ways and it's such a pleasure to chat with paul ricks about a great book a book that you can look up and bring a great story into your life we'll be sure to have paul back it's a pleasure to chat with him lots more coming up you're going to hear from uh, martha hamilton and mitch weiss you're going to hear from madeline potts you're going to hear from dan kedding a whole lot more coming up today on the apple seat i'm sam payne
4: You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne.
3: It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on The Apple Seed, bringing great stories into your home and into your heart. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we had a conversation with Paul Ricks, a conversation about the book When You Reach Me. It's always a pleasure to chat about a great book. Books, of course, are one of the great ways in which to get great stories into your heart and into your mind. And at the top of the hour, uh, we listened to Party Girl, a story from Lini Del Siemens. I listened to it not only with you but also with our producer Jeff Simpson. It was a pleasure to have him in the studio. And there is a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. This is a story from a collection of stories called The Apron. And it's uh, Madeline Potts who's telling the story. Madeline is from Florida. And here she shares the story of trying to rid her home of a pesky critter. But what happens when Madeline develops a soft spot for her prisoner well, that's where the story comes in. You're going to find out from Madeline Potts in a story called Trapping the Critter. Here she is on the Apple scene.
0: The sign said, Welcome to Florida, and as if on command, a golden glow filtered through the windshield of my Volkswagen bus, dissolving the last chill of the northeast winter. I had left my beloved Brooklyn. I was relocating, beginning over barreling down I-95 to my new home. I had only seen the house once before. It was empty at the time, and when I walked into the master bedroom, a nearly petrified dead beetle, or what I thought was a beetle, was lying on the floor. The real estate agent softly hummed, La cucaracha, but the innuendo was lost on me, and that was my introduction to Florida wildlife. A few weeks later, I discovered a wolf spider. I pulled back the shower curtain, stepped into the tub, and there he was, right in front of my nose, as big as a fist clinging to the wall. And there were the mosquitoes, the size of quarters, making shrill, piercing sounds as they dive-bombed me at night, forcing me to sleep with my head under the blanket for protection. But the worst was the tobacco chewer. The first time I saw him, I thought he was an abandoned toy left in the garden, a five-inch-long grasshopper-like thing with yellow and black racing stripes and googly eyes. But then the toy turned its head and stared at me, and somehow that tobacco chewer found its way into my car, onto my shoulder, and down my shirt while I was driving. I swerved into a gas station, jumped out of the car, flapped my shirt up and down and screamed. Two young, handsome and muscular attendants came out because this was back in the day when there was such a thing as attendants. They picked up the bug which had landed on the ground a little traumatized and laughed. You ain't afeard of this little bug, are you? I pulled my polo back down gathered up the shreds of my dignity and said, Yes, I am. I was a city girl, born and raised on the concrete streets and brick stoops of Brooklyn. So yes, I was afeard of that bug and the armadillos and the black snakes and all the other creatures that grew to mammoth proportions in the state of Florida." Fortunately, help arrived. His name was Robert. He was a born and bred Floridian with a prodigious knowledge of all its plants and animal life. He was the man who knew how to cook swamp cabbage and what snakes were poisonous. He was the person you would want to be with if you were dumb enough to get lost in the Everglades. And we fell madly in love. I married him. Now, Robert's favorite pastime was gardening. We had eggplants and zucchini, okra and tomatoes, and beans that twined around rope trellises. We were well-fed and happy. And then the problem started. The raccoons discovered Robert's garden. Each morning he would awake to find the tender new shoots of his baby plants chewed down to the dirt. What you going to do, I asked him. Well... I'm going to scare them off, he said. I'm going to wait up and watch for them, and when they get all comfy in the garden, I'm going to roar at them, and they'll be scared off, and they won't want to come back. No, I'm not a gardener, so what did I know? But that didn't sound like much of a plan. And Robert's problem was he kept falling asleep. He would sit up for hours, and the moment he dozed off, that's when the raccoons came out. On to plan B, which I thought held promise. It was Robert's relocation program. He bought a live trap, a three-foot wire cage with a door that sprung shut when anything entered. He put it in the garden, baited with fresh fruit, and that very night he caught... Well, the neighbor's cat. But after that, he did get the raccoons and took them hissing and growling to their new home in a wooded area miles away. The plan worked, and peace was restored to the garden. "'It was midsummer when Robert got called away on business. "'He wasn't going far, just overnight to Micanope, "'a sleepy little town near Gainesville, "'but he was very concerned about leaving me. "'Will you be okay? Are you sure? Do you want me to cancel?' "'No! I'm a big girl. I'll be fine. Just go!' "'And so the next day, at the crack of dawn, "'he kissed me goodbye and left.' I was actually enjoying my time alone, puttering around the house, and at midday I went into the spare bedroom that we called my office. I was about to settle down at my desk when I noticed something strange on the floor some inch long brown things. They weren't moving, so I walked over for a better look. I bent down and closer. Oh, I jumped back in horror. It was critter poop, no doubt about it. And then I heard a scratching sound coming from the closet, the closet with the door that didn't stay quite shut. All my instincts for survival kicked in. I shoved a chair against the closet door and then, well... I'm not actually sure how it happened, but I wound up standing on my desk, shrieking and pressing my knees together. I grabbed the phone and called the number Robert had given me. Something in the house, something in the house. Someone's in the house, he asked. No, no, something in the house, Some Critter poop on the floor, something in the closet. Okay, Robert said. Take a breath. Tell me what's going on. There's a critter in the closet. Where are you? I'm standing on my desk. There was a pause. And then he started to laugh. I could tell he was trying to muffle the sound, but there was no doubt about it. He was hysterical, and I was offended. I yelled, it's not funny, and he got control of himself. Okay, here's what you do. You go get the trap put it on the floor a few feet away from the closet you got some grapes uh-huh go get him and make a little trail leading up to the trap and put the rest of the grapes inside it you can squeeze a couple let them get all juicy and fragrant and you'll see you'll trap the critter and in the morning i'll be home and relocate it So I went into the kitchen, got the grapes, set up the trap according to Robert's instructions, and when I was done, I kicked the chair away from the closet, ran out of the room, and slammed the door behind me. (sighs) Safe, in the kitchen, I leaned against the counter and caught my breath. Tea. I needed a nice cup of chamomile tea to calm myself down. I filled the kettle and had just placed it on the stove when I heard, clink. No. Was that the trap? It couldn't be. Could I have caught something already? So I peeked into the office, and there, inside the trap, was the sweetest-looking silver-furred baby possum. It was huddled against the bars. My heart went out to it. I lost my fear, approached the cage, and offered some kind words of encouragement. And I discovered that possums of any age don't care a lick about kind words of encouragement. This one snarled and hissed and about scared me half to death. I ran back out of the room. I I had to do something. I was certain that possum would escape the trap and the room and find its way to my bedroom in the middle of the night. I was not going to sleep with that thing in the house. It had to be removed. But first I was going to protect myself. I put my husband's flannel shirt on over my jeans and blouse. I buttoned it all the way up and closed the cuffs. Then I pulled out my knee-high leather boots and my New York winter coat with a fake fur collar. I tied a scarf around my head and held it in place with Robert's knitted fisherman's cap and completed my ensemble with oven mitts from the kitchen. Then I went into the office. The possum bared his pointy little teeth, and caged or not, I wasn't getting anywhere near him. So I got the broom, and holding it upside down, I managed to push, pull, and wiggle that trap out of the room, down the hall, through the kitchen, out the back door, and into the yard. I really wanted to release that critter. I poked and prodded at the door with the broom handle, but I couldn't get it open. Sweat began pouring down my back. Did I mention that it was August and 96 degrees and I was dressed for a nor'easter? And the possum wasn't doing too good either. He hunched down, completely immobile, and then he flopped over, little twitching feet pointing straight up toward the heavens. I stared at him. Oh, no, I've killed him. I must have given him a heart attack. I'm a baby possum killer. Now, I was probably on the verge of heat stroke and not thinking clearly, or else I surely would have remembered about possums playing possum. But in that moment, the combination of heat, fear, and guilt overcame my intellect. "'I dropped the broom. I ran into the kitchen. "'I threw off the hat and scarf and coat and kicked off the boots. "'I held my head under the running faucet and drank long gulps of cold water. "'I slid down to the floor, collapsed against the kitchen cabinet, and had a good cry. "'I wasn't raised for this.' "'These things belong in the Bronx Zoo, not in my house. "'How do people live here anyway "'with animals taking over their homes?' "'I wallowed in self-pity for a while. "'But as I cooled off, I calmed down, "'and I began to think about that poor baby possum "'that I had probably murdered. "'If there was still a chance it was alive, "'I had to set it free.' I couldn't let it roast in that metal cage. So I told myself, "'You're bigger than that little creature. "'It's probably more scared of you than you are of him, "'so you go out there and unlock that cage.' "'I put the coat back on and the oven mitts "'and went outside and the door to the trap was a little open "'and the critter was gone. "'I looked around.' There was no sign of it. I guessed all that poking and prodding had loosened the door. After all, I didn't know where it went, and I didn't care. Thank goodness it was gone, and I wasn't a murderer. Early the next morning, I heard the door open. I went running to greet my husband. Where's the critter, he asked. Oh, honey, it was just a baby possum. I couldn't leave him in that cage, so I uh, took him outside and set him free. My husband put his arms around me and held me close and whispered, I'm so proud of you. You're turning into a real country girl.
3: A story told for you by Madeline Potts. It's from a collection of stories called The Apron. Now, Madeline herself has said, often as I'm telling a story, I hear little sounds from the listeners indicating recognition of a shared feeling or experience. And right then and there, while the words are coming out of my mouth and my arms are moving in gestures, I'm rejoicing in that feeling of connection. And you likely felt that connection as you reflected on any critters you may have captured, and even critters that you may have captured and set free. You know, that's what makes a magical story, when listeners and teller realize that they've experienced something similar, something in common, something that connects them. And up next, we've got a story from Martha Hamilton and Mitch Weiss. Now, they call themselves the Beauty and the Beast storytellers, and they collect stories and tell them to kids with the idea that kids will be able to tell these stories too. In fact, this is from a collection of stories called How and Why Stories... Tales Kids Can Tell. This is a story known as a pourquoi story, or a why story. Stories that attempt to help us understand, in a storytelling way, why things, people, or places are the way they are. And in this story, you get some insight into why certain animals behave the way they do. It's called, again, Taxi Ride, and you're sure to get a kick out of it. Here's Martha and Mitch on The Appleseed.
6: The Taxi Ride, a story from northern Ghana and Mauritania.
2: If you go for a drive in the country and happen to see a donkey in the road, chances are he'll just stand there. Even if you honk your horn at him, Uh, uh, uh. he'll stare at you as if you're crazy and keep standing right in your way.
6: If you come upon a goat, he usually seems to scamper away as fast as he can.
2: And if you see a dog near the road, he'll often chase
6: your car. The people of West Africa tell a story that explains why these animals behave the way they do. You see, some time ago, when cars first came to the roads, a donkey, a goat, and a dog were sharing a taxi. They were headed back to the villages where they lived. When they reached the first village, the donkey tapped the driver on the shoulder and said, This is where I get out.
2: How much do I owe you? The driver replied, That'll be five coins.
6: The donkey paid the driver and went on his way. The taxi driver headed on down the road with the goat and the dog in the back seat. Soon the goat tapped the driver on the shoulder and said, This is where I live. How much? The driver held out his hand and said, Five coins. The goat checked in every one of his furry pockets, but he had left all his money at home. So he jumped out of the taxi and scampered away without paying the driver. The driver was furious. He ran after the goat but soon realized he'd never catch him. So he got back in the taxi and continued on down the road. At long last they came to the dog's village. He tapped the driver on the shoulder and asked, How much?
2: For you, five coins.
6: The dog got out of the car opened a big bag of coins and began to count them out.
2: When the driver saw the money, he decided he could make up for the coins the goat hadn't paid. So he grabbed the bag of coins and drove off down the road, roaring with
6: laughter. Now you know why. A donkey, a goat, and a dog all do different things when a car comes down the road.
2: Donkeys just stand right where they are. They let the driver go around them. They know they've paid up. They've done nothing wrong, so they've got nothing to be ashamed of.
6: When a goat sees a car coming, it'll scurry away as fast as it can. It knows that it didn't pay the taxi fare, and the driver is still looking for his five coins. But
2: dogs spend their time chasing cars. They're still trying to find the taxi driver who once cheated them. (laughs)
3: Martha and Mitch. Martha Hamilton and Mitch Weiss, the Beauty and the Beast storytellers, with Taxi ride. And of course, that was from a collection of stories called How and Why Tales Kids Can Tell. It's a cool album full of stories for kids. Some of the stories are even told by kids. The idea is that kids can learn to tell those stories themselves. It's been a real pleasure to bring you stories and songs from Lenny Del Siemens and Madeline Potts and Martha Hamilton and Mitch Weiss. And we've got time now for one more little tale, this one from the Chicago storyteller Dan Kedding. And it it follows the rule of three. Now, we've talked about this on the show before. The rule of three suggests that a trio of characters or events is more humorous or satisfying or effective than other numbers. A lot of stories have three brothers, for example. Like this one. It features three siblings who are tasked with solving a riddle. Whoever solves the riddle wins their father's house. Will it be one of the hard-working sons or will it be the party girl of the family? Let's find out from a collection of stories called Strawberry in winter, here's Dan Kedding with a story called Filling Up the House on the Appleseed.
7: Once there was a father who had three children. His oldest son was named Logan, a hard-working young man. His middle son was named Ben, also a hard-working young man. And his little daughter was named Georgia. Georgia. And she was a party animal. All she wanted to do was sing and dance and be with her friends. When the father got older, he thought to himself, who should I leave my big house and my farm to? Logan, my oldest hard-working son? Ben, my middle hardworking son? Or Georgia, the party animal? He didn't know what to do, so he gave each one of the children one dollar and told them, with this dollar, you have to fill up the house the three kids looked at their father and said, ha, We don't get it. The father said, It's a riddle. Figure it out. Now Logan decided to go for a walk in the country. He walked and he walked and he walked and he walked and he thought and he thought and he thought and he thought and he said to himself, How can I fill a house with one dollar? And as he followed the turn of the road, he saw a chicken farm. Dozens and dozens of low houses filled with chickens. And you could hear them cackling, He walked up to the farmer's house and knocked on the door. The farmer opened the door and said, Hey, Logan, how are you today? Fine, sir, and you? I'm good. What can I do for you? I was wondering, sir, what do you do with all the chicken feathers when you're done with the chickens? Why do you ask, said the farmer. I was wondering how many I could buy for a dollar. For a dollar, you can buy as many as you want. "'And Logan went back and got wagons and loaded those wagons filled with chicken feathers. "'He brought them back to the house. "'He filled up the kitchen, filled up the dining room, filled up the living room, "'filled up the hallway, filled up the bedrooms, filled up the attic, "'filled up the cellar with chicken feathers. "'His father came home and saw all the chicken feathers, and he said, "'Well done!' "'And they walked from room to room, but you know what happens with feathers. "'They settle. "'And when they got to that last room, they'd settled and left about two feet of space at the top.' Nice try, Logan, his father said. Now, Ben, he went to town, and he walked and he walked and he walked and he walked and he thought and he thought and he thought and he thought and he said to himself, how can I fill a house with one dollar? And he stopped in front of a candle shop, and as he looked inside the window, Ben had an idea. He walked in and said, excuse me, sir, how many of those little candles can I buy for one dollar? And the candle maker said, twelve. So Ben bought them. He put one in the kitchen, one in the dining room, one in the living room, one in the hallway, some in the bedroom, one in the bathroom, one in the attic, one in the cellar. He lit them all and filled the whole house with light. His father came home and said, Well done, Ben. And they walked from room to room to room. But they were really little candles. And that last candle had burned down and the room was dark. Nice try. Now Georgia didn't have a clue. She walked, and she walked, and she walked, and she walked, and she thought, and she thought, and she thought, and she thought. She asked all her friends, but they were all going to a party, and they didn't know. She sat on a park bench, head in her hands, and then she looked up. And as she looked up, she was looking right into the window of the old antique store. And hanging in the window was a banjo. The top was all loose, the strings were all out of tune. The wood was covered in grime, and the metal was covered in rust. And the price was one dollar. So she walked in, and she bought it. And she took it home, and she polished up the wood till it shone. She scoured the metal till it was as bright as the sun. She tightened up the top, tuned up the strings. She opened up the door to the kitchen, door to the dining room, door to the living room, door to the bedroom, door to the attic, door to the cellar. She sat in the big hallway and she started to play. father walked in the back door, walked through the kitchen and the dining room, walked into the living room, walked up the steps to the bedrooms. He walked from the cellar to the attic and the whole house was filled with music. He looked at George and said, well done, you won the house. Now Logan, he went to college and became a lawyer, famous lawyer, went to Congress, didn't stay too long and made lots of good laws for people. Ben, he became a doctor, the first doctor in the history of this country to do a sinus transplant. He was really famous. And Georgia, she became the best farmer in the whole country. People from all around the world came to her to ask advice about crops and animals, and she always gave it freely. And every Saturday night, she invited all her family and all her friends to the house for a party, and she always had a banjo player.
3: Dan Kedding there with a story called Filling Up the House, a story from a collection of stories called Strawberries in Winter. Pleasure to bring you that tale today. In addition, of course, to stories from Madeline Potts and Lini Del Siemens, Martha Hamilton and Mitch Weiss, the Beauty and the Beast storytellers. And, of course, you can find us online at byuradio.org Appleseed. You'll find there episodes like the episode that you're enjoying now and you'll also find their mini episodes we call them apple seed extras they're just a few minutes long a single story in case you only have a few minutes and you want to fill those few minutes with a great Tale. In the Appleseed extra we've posted today, you'll hear the samurai on the storyteller from Dan Kenning, the storyteller that you just heard a moment ago. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne, and it's such a pleasure to have you with us on The Appleseed. Join us again, won't you?
6: Thanks for joining
1: us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.
3: Hey, it's Sam. Just one more thing before we go. You know, we love bringing stories to the air just about every day. Tall tales and fairy tales and folk tales. I love that stuff. What do I listen to when I'm not listening to the stories that we bring you on the Appleseed? Well, I listen to a lot of the shows that are produced by BYU Radio. Top of Mind with Julie Rose. The Lisa Show with Lisa Valentine Clark and Richie T. Constant Wonder with Marcus Smith. They're all available as podcasts and at byuradio.org. Give a listen. I'll see you next time.